So welcome to the Bailey. This is the show where technical difficulties delay us by 14 minutes. I'm your host, Yassine Masood. And today's topic is going to be the resignation of Stallman. Fuck, what was his first name? Richard? Richard. Yeah. Yeah. The removal of Richard Richard Stallman. And perhaps uh, a wider discussion on uh, the the name du jour, which is cancel culture. We're going to have a a Stallwood defender in support of... uh, Richard Stallman resigning, and that's going to be our champion, 93. So, 93, would you want to give us a broad overview of who Richard Stallman is, what got him in trouble recently, and then uh, guide us through what you think was appropriate? So, Richard Stallman is a big name in open source stuff. He has contributed a lot to GNU, which... If you don't know what that is, just it's important and we can probably skip over exactly why because all that you really need to know is he's a big tech guy. And so what happened recently was that on an email thread, he was arguing about Martin Minsky, who is another tech person that had been tangled up in the Jeffrey Epstein thing where Minsky had been to the private island, was accused of assaulting an underage girl, and Richard Stallman was defending him by making the point that whether or not she was coerced, she probably presented herself to Minsky as willing, and therefore it's inappropriate to refer to what he did as assault. And he also made the point that the difference between 17 years old and 18 years old in defining the line of statutory rape is kind of arbitrary and depends on the nation, which was not something he was fond of. Okay, so I do want to pause just momentarily because... I want to entang- uh, disentangle uh, the specific words that Richard Stallman posted in uh, uh, in the email that he sent out. Sure. Let me pull it up and I will give exact quotes for the controversial stuff. The word assaulting presumes that he applied force or violence in some unspecified way, but the article itself says no such thing, only that they had sex. We can imagine many scenarios, but the most plausible is that she presented herself as to him as entirely willing. Assuming she was being coerced by Epstein, he would have had every reason to tell her to conceal that for most of his associates. So it looks like Stallman was commenting on Marvin Minsky, who relevantly... He is deceased. He dies in he died in 2016. So he's posthumously being accused of quote sexual assault. Um, Richard Stallman had an objection to using the word sexual assault because it's vague. It's kind of an opprobrious uh, term. It has obviously a bad connotation, and so he kind of raised a very narrow and specific objection. He doesn't want the word sexual assault to be used because in his mind uh, he he's assuming for the sake of argument that uh, he Marvin Minsky did have sex with a woman that was part of Epstein's harem. Uh, And for those that don't know, is it Epstein or Epstein? Let's just go with Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein Epstein is is the, I don't even know how to sum up his case. That's like its own episode. That's uh, that's another can of worms. <laughs> yeah. But we could but probably anyway, just write Epstein off as, yeah. <laughs> he very plausibly had uh, a harem of young women that he used for sexual advantage. Uh, some of them were as young as 14. 
um, whether or not the the, the degree the accounts of, of the women involved, it looks like a widespread case of serious grooming. Yeah, serious grooming, se- uh, se- sexual trafficking, kind of the whole list. And he apparently used the, this repertoire of women as a way to curry favor with the uh, with all the people that he associated with. And it looks like that uh, Marvin Minsky was one of these people. So I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of it, but I think for the sake of this uh, conversation, we'll just assume that Marvin Minsky did in fact have sex with one of the women that was under Epstein's uh, penumbra. So Richard Stallman is having a very specific disagreement with the language that's being used with regards to Marvin Minsky. He's not defending his sexual conduct, but necessarily, but more about how it's described. The problem is he's making a tone deaf, uh, a tone deaf pedantic, but uh, uh, arguably, you know, well, very pedantic point. That's fair, but I just want to kind of lay the, the, we can get to that later, but I just want to lay the groundwork in terms of what exactly his point is. Right. And does anyone know uh, Marvin Minsky's relationship with uh, Richard Stallman? Are they people that likely would have known each other? I believe Marvin Minsky was the, he, he was an AI researcher also at MIT. Yeah, they both worked at the Media Lab. Uh, I think they also had crossed paths earlier in their careers too. Okay, so it's plausible that they were good friends or at yes. least knew each other very well. Otherwise, I don't think uh, it makes sense for why he would kind of jump into this mess to begin with unless he's fond of making these types of corrections Uh, which he is 93 is that a fair summary so far yep okay so in the interest of organization how about we go through kind of i guess that's what we're doing do you have any comments about about that so far so the the overall narrative was he made these comments when or, or Stallman made these comments about the Epstein scandal and he got uh, fired from that. Is that the, is that the case? He was pressured to resign. Oh, and it should be noted that he made these comments on a, well, a private mailing list uh, of MIT Media Lab people, although it was a big enough mailing list that you would expect stuff to get leaked. So his his objection is narrow. He's he doesn't want to use the word sexual assault because that implies some sort of coercion. And the the terminology that got him in trouble is the most plausible scenario is that she presented herself to him as entirely willing, which means essentially means he didn't know or that Marvin Minsky didn't know what the what this woman's situation was, whether she was voluntary or not, but she appeared voluntary. Uh, but then he says, assuming she was being coerced by Epstein, that's the likely, that's the most likely scenario. Okay, so he said that he deci- he concluded that using the word sexual assault was a case of inflation, where people are using excessively severe terms and diluting their meaning by using them in places that they probably shouldn't be used. And then he goes on to end with, whatever conduct you want to criticize, you should describe it with a specific term that avoids moral vagueness about the nature of the criticism. He also got in trouble for a point made later, which is short, and so I'll just say it here. 
I think it is morally absurd to define rape in a way that depends on minor details, such as which country it was in, or whether the victim was 18 years old or 17. And all of his comments essentially drew the predictable response that he was talking about uh, statutory rape in a way that was not maximally critical, and people were very upset. So specifically what happened after was someone got a hold of the emails, of course, and this was a, an MIT grad graduate by the name of Salam G. I don't know her, her full name. And she quickly typed up a post on Medium that garnered significant amount of attention. A few days after, Richard Stallman did indeed resign, citing mischaracterizations and misunderstandings regarding uh, his, po his, uh, his text or his writings. Yeah, and the Medium post does make a substantial mischaracterization where it set the Medium post describes him as saying that the underage girl was entirely willing, which is an odd characterization to make because it quotes him above, and in fact, he described her as presenting herself as entirely willing, which is a very important difference that the post misses or deliberately elides. Does anyone on this call want to defend Salam G and her characterization of that? Because when I read it, I was so infuriated. Doesn't it make any sense to me? No. Because uh, I think the relevant thing ought to be the perception of what's his name again? Minsky? Marvin Minsky? Yes. Yeah, Richard Stallman was talking about the perception and perspective of Marvin Minsky, what he likely saw. And what he knows. Right, which is different from what reality is, potentially. Okay, well, I suppose it could be a honest misreading on the gal's part writing that. Um, Either it's an <laughs> honest <laughs> misreading. She's seeing... Uh, Stallman essentially defend what she sees to be a pedophile. It's it's hard to be maximally charitable to the, uh, something like that, especially if you're having a strong emotional reaction to it. Or not even a strong emotional, but at least a strong moral reaction to it. Her, her specific argument is uh, she says, she's, she expresses outrage that Richard Stallman can even say that it, quote, an enslaved child could somehow be entirely willing. End quote. Which is the opposite of what he said. And it's, I'm trying to read, especially given that she provided the full, full scope of the quotation. <laughs> yeah, uh, like right in, above it. Yeah, where in the next sentence, uh, he says, assuming she was being coerced by Epstein, he would have had every reason to tell her to conceal that from most of his associates. So the scenario in his mind, to repeat, is... Uh, it, Stallman assumes that Epstein has these women under coercion, but instructs them to present themselves as willing. Because right. supposedly, while Epstein might have the wherewithal to coerce women into the sex trade, the people that he's, quote, servicing uh, don't necessarily want to engage in that. And so I, I'm trying, I don't know how, like, how to bridge that gap between what Stallman actually said and the complete completely different interpretation well, that Salam had let me give it a shot okay um, okay so 
yeah, all of this is surrounding Marvin Minsky, and uh, apparently he went to this island with Epstein. And uh, let's assume, assuming that he actually did have sex, Epstein here brought in a bunch of girls, and uh, he had sex with one of them. Uh, you're on an island, uh, this guy's private island, and he's offering you women to have sex with. Um, something's probably screwy here. Maybe you should have think thought twice about doing it. I mean, that's fair. I'm I'm not saying that this is a very good argument, but I'm just saying. Uh, um, but I'm saying that's you know, maybe okay, but, he should but, have been. Uh, let's let's follow that thread. It definitely, obviously, is fishy for you to be on a private island and suddenly there's a very attractive woman that wants to sleep with you if you're not used to that. So let's say, let's assume that Marvin Ninsky is not used to that. I think the most plausible explanation is this is probably a sex worker. And maybe there's like an element of them kind of um, closing their eyes and being blind to that or intentionally um, not acknowledging that fact. But that's still there's kind of another uh, gap that you have to jump in that the argument then that you would have to make in order to fit within Salam's uh, Salam's interpretation is that all sex with sex workers is by necessity coercive or is all sex by sex. She was in fact underage, which (laughs) we've gone. (laughs) We've we're going into Justin Murphy territory. You don't have to have particular views on sex workers to object to her being underage. Right. But then but then you have to assume that um, she provided her driver's license. (laughs) And and it wasn't a fake ID either. Like you you, that problem, I think at some point you have to say, you know, okay, this this uh, underage girl is being manipulated by Epstein or is she just a regular prostitute? So, I mean. Is it is Marvin Minsky going to be in a uh, in a position to evaluate that particular um, nugget? Yeah, and and this is all about what what Marvin Minsky's perspective was, what his uh, what his viewpoint was, given the reasonable conclusions that he can draw from his position. Yeah, we're basically, not, we're, we're not talking we're, about what Jeffrey Epstein did. Yeah, or we're arg- <laughs> we're arguing yeah. over the mens rea of Marvin Minsky. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. You have to distinguish between the perception of the person and litigate how real their perception of was it, how close it was to the objective reality that this is an underage coerced sex worker. Of course, with the added uh, complication that uh, statutory rape is a strict liability offense. Well, sure, but... could you explain those words to the Neanderthals in the room? <laughs> oh, sorry. Strict liability means uh, mental state doesn't matter. Um, it, it means if you violate the rule, even if you didn't know you violated the rule, even if you weren't intending to violate the rule, you're going to get punished as if you did. Even if you check their driver's license, if it was a fake, then you're still liable. Yes, there's no intent element or knowing element for statutory rape. Okay, so on what grounds do you def- on what grounds do you defend Mr. Minsky then? Lawyers in the room, well, considering it's a strict liability, and the, assuming he did it, I, I'm, uh, from the reading I did, it's not even entirely clear that this guy did sleep with this girl. But, yeah, but the whole point of the conversation is that Stallman are accepted uh, in his argument that he did, and then made the point about that. 
So to give you, I mean, to flesh out what statutory rape, what convictions can survive under statutory rape, someone can present you with a driver's license, uh, a purportedly notarized birth certificate, um, testimony from like the aunt that assures you that this person is definitely over the age of consent. And then if you have sex with that person and you, and you realize afterwards that all those three uh, or any of those things were fraudulent, then you're still liable for statutory rape. And I think a lot of people would maybe agree that that's unfair, but the law doesn't make that distinction because essentially it just puts the onus on, on individuals uh, that w- could be perpetrators of this act to just say, look, we don't care what uh, we're not going to, we're not going to investigate what your thought pattern was. We're just going to assume that if you did in fact sleep with someone that is under the age of consent, you committed a crime. We don't care whether you intended to do it. We don't care whether you, you were misled by it. Uh, it doesn't matter. It just kind of simplifies the the inquiry and it shifts you can you can like talk about this from a coast theorem standpoint but shifts the the responsibility to the people uh and they have to decide you know i'm about to sleep with a person or am i completely sure that they are over the age of consent and it's up to them to to uh, hold up the risk so it could be described that stallman's argument was defending someone in who in theory committed statutory rape even within his argument yeah sure he, he accepted the possibility that minsky committed statutory rape yes as legally understood and was defending that there's a lot of well, things his main objection was to the characterization as sexual assault which is this weird ambiguous word where sometimes it's used to refer to just statutory rape but often and including in the Jeffrey Epstein case, it's referred to, used to refer to more explicit coercion. Well, so the, the, uh, the law in the British or the, uh, the Virgin Islands or whatever this, where, wherever this occurred is that uh, age of consent is 18. Is that, uh, I believe that's what the article said. Um, however, uh, if, if they had done this in uh, Nevada, Washington state, Texas, Louisiana, North Carolina, New uh, New York, Pennsylvania. It, she would have been over the age of consent in all of those and many, many more states. It's CRC. Did you just Google age of consent? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fun fact: California is the only state in the U.S. where the age of ex- consent is eighteen, no exceptions. Every other state has, at minimum, rules that allow an 18-year-old and a 17-year-old to have sex with each other. Yeah, the Jack and Jill rules so that, uh, you know, it's totally legal for for two people who are dating to have sex at 17, then one of them turns 18, and all of a sudden it's statutory rape. That, uh, that That's what that's trying to stop, because it's absurd. We can we can talk about <laughs> statutory rape for a while. Yeah, so it sounds like a topic of its own. But suffice to say, the we point is... Should, probably shouldn't be litigated by a bunch of libertarians yeah. either. <laughs> uh, yeah, we probably don't need the optics hit. Uh, but suffice to say, the jurisdictions uh, have kind of a variance in terms of what's acceptable and what's not. And you can come up, as I did, with some pretty ridiculous scenarios that... I would be confident that a lot of people would deem unfair if you were misled to that level by, for example, three pieces of solid evidence that you would still be convicted by that. So there's there's some room 
of the bait for the bait, I guess, when it comes to what the proper age of consent is. And I think what cuts to the heart of it is that he's saying, look, you're, you're calling this sexual assault. But if he were 300 miles away in a different jurisdiction, it wouldn't be. Well, it, I don't want to make, I don't want to confuse this issues like he Richard Salmon's focus on sexual assault is predicated on whether the element of coercion was present, whether the element of uh, consent was was not present. So it's not necessarily you, you can make the argument that it was statutory rape and therefore there was no consent and therefore it was sexual assault. But that's kind of a separate under a separate rubric. There's three kind of different ways that uh, you can talk about whether this was uh, coerced and therefore sexual assault. One is uh, she was trafficked. The other is she was a sex worker and the other is that she was underage. We don't know exactly which one Richard Stallman is focusing on. True. Anyway, I promised that I would defend Richard Stallman's firing, and we haven't quite gotten there yet. No, we're so, just lit- litigating all the the specific paragraph bit by bit. Yeah, who who called Stallman pedantic earlier? Because <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that Actually, was me. Yeah, it's accurate though. He, he, he. I mean, I mean, he worked in the GNU compiler collection, and that has a dash dash pedantic flag that you can pass in for, and it'll be really, really strict about what sort of errors it finds in your code. Fun trivia fact. And also, yeah, he's a really pedantic guy. I mean, I would assume that someone that's within that field is more pedantic than, than the median. Yeah. He also has some novel political views, which are largely unconnected to this. Like he believes in free software so much that he refuses to use an internet browser because there are no browsers that are based on entirely open source technology. And so he basically uses curl to access the internet. It's not literally curl, but something analogous to that. Curl is a command line tool that allows you to grab a URL and download the contents of that web page to your computer. And that's basically how he browses the internet. <laughs> Wait, yeah, so, it, so he uses wget. <laughs> Does it save it as an HTML file? Yeah, yeah, it saves it as HTML. So how do you open the HTML? It's your text editor with Emacs. Yep. Okay, and that's that's okay under his rules. Okay. Well, it, it's GNU Emacs. Yeah, sorry. Yes, GNU Emacs. I forgot about the GNU part. <laughs> that is some dedication to principle. Oh yeah. Uh, he was so dedicated to principle that apparently later in the thread where uh, that we're discussing, he actually wants to get a hold of uh, this uh, this individual's testimony, and he can't because it's on Google Drive. So he has to ask somebody to download it for him and get it to him. <laughs> he's, in, he's an ideologue. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he has some really fun criticisms where he talks about how you shouldn't use Gmail because it's based on Java, which is not open source. The horror. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, it's not free software. Yeah, his objection is that it's derived from technologies which are not open source. Therefore, you shouldn't use it. So uh, this is giving me relevant information about who this person is. Uh, so 93, how about you continue? I think we've laid out kind of the specific that we've laid out the specific objections and the timeline. So he resigned slash was forced to resign. 
And you believe, do you believe that that was an appropriate thing to happen? Yes. His points were pedantic, narrow, entirely accurate, and also unwise to make, which is basically what my criticism of him boils down to. Okay. So walk us through that. Go uh, step by step. So we've kind of covered how none of us object to anything he said, and the criticism that he received was focused on an unreasonable interpretation slash misreading. And basically what he did wrong is that when you – the way I described this earlier is that he was talking about statutory rape in a way that was not maximally critical, and of course people got angry. It seems obvious that when you are making pedantic, narrow points about something as touchy as statutory rape, it will end badly even if you are entirely in the right. So how do you fix that? Is that is that just something, a reality that has to be accepted? Uh Yes. I'm not sure if there is anyone who fixes this, but it's certainly not Richard Stallman. Richard Stallman keeps his head down if he's wise. And to go a little more into why I think it's appropriate that he be fired for making an unwise PR move, he's the position he resigned from is as president of the Free and Open Software Foundation, which is a nonprofit that's run entirely on donations, has a budget of one or two million dollars per year, and most of that budget goes to essentially public relations work, where about a quarter of their budget is spent on development for GNU, and the rest of it goes to doing sort of PR for the concept of free and open software, helping people with GNU license and so on. And so he is the head of what is essentially a PR firm. If you, if the head of your PR firm is making unpopular statements about pedophilia, they're doing something very wrong, especially if the PR firm is supposed to be about software. He messed up in his job as head of PR, and he is being fired accordingly, both because he demonstrated poor PR skills and because it would significantly harm the mission of their pro-open software PR firm if, from now on, everyone thought of them as those pedophilia guys. Well, let's 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 uh, be be clear. He was not fired. He he was not even forced to resign. According to him himself, he was merely pressured to resign. Yeah, I've been I've been using the term fired just because it's much less wordy than pressured to resign. But yeah, yeah I well, made that point earlier. And it is probably important. Yeah, well, so you're what, being what, pedantic. I know I'm being pedantic, <laughs> but I have, I have a point I want to get to, which is uh, no, uh, since we did uh, in a roundabout way discuss his personality, I could see him um, uh, basically the pressure that he was feeling to resign may not uh, may or may not have come from you know his colleagues it may be that he is such a devout believer in what the uh, free software foundation is doing that he sees this as an unneeded distraction um, taking away from the mission and therefore he resigned in order to prevent the organization from going down with him i mean that was uh, i mean i i can see it that that being a perfectly valid explanation for why he chose to resign. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, he did found the Free Software Foundation, so it would make 
I assume he would want it to continue doing its job. And if he can't be a part of that, then he has to accept it. And it's also worth noting at this point that Stallman took no salary as head of the Open Software Foundation. He was... In about 2000, he received a prize of almost a million dollars, which he stated that he planned to invest. He lives very cheaply, so he is quite likely living off the interest of the large prize he received. Financially, he's going to be fine. Well, he certainly isn't spending money on software. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that stuff gets expensive. Okay, so this is what you described, 93, is... I don't really have uh, an objection to it. It's, it's accurate in the sense that if you run a PR firm and you say you blunder into whether you deserve it or not, you blunder into a situation where that triggers a significant amount of pushback. The best thing to do is to just, you know, walk away because you failed at your job by definition. However, you can still have room for, disagreement on the grounds that he wasn't treated fairly. And so I think everyone would agree that if you cause an uproar, then you should resign when you're in the realm of public relations. At the very least, if you cause a predictable outroar. Yeah, yeah. If you, like, if you cause a predictable uproar and you're in the realm of public relations, then you've fundamentally failed at your job by definition. But it still leaves open the question as to I don't whether it it's deserved because my, my concern with this is that it was based on a misreading of his statements. And so if we're going to go, if the standard is whether you can predictably assume that your statements could be misread, it broadens the field for what kind of acts could be seen as offensive and therefore grounds for removal from your place of employment or, and or affiliation. I agree that, It is a bad situation, and it would be nice if this kind of thing were not inducing the kind of public outroar that makes it strategically correct for people to resign. But a lot of people were basically seeing this as another case where people were seeing it as much more analogous to, say, James Damore, who is just an ordinary coder who got fired for having controversial political statements. And... Richard Stallman is different in important ways that I wanted to highlight in this defense of his firing, namely the PR angle. I see. Would you, without getting into the whole Damore uh, situation, how would you feel about uh, James Damore's removal? I'm much less prepared to defend it than I am Richard Stallman's. If I were to defend it, the angle that I would go from is that a lot of his colleagues were very loudly expressing that they would refuse to work with him. And it is possible that that created a situation where he would no longer be a productive worker through the failures of cooperation that he creates just by being in the workplace, in which case you can either tell everyone else in the company to suck it up and deal with him, in which case they will still probably not be terribly productive working with him, or you can fire him, which seems much easier than doing the first thing. Well, I I suppose I I wanted to say that this case and with Stallman, I suppose it kind of highlights whether you care about the objective or the perception of the people 
who took the offense. Because the fact of the matter is, like, should people be offended? Like, that's an open question. But the fact of the matter was... (laughs) (laughs) Fair. But the fact of the matter is, a bunch of people did take offense to this thing. And if that is the... And if that is the mission of being at the head of uh, something that where PR is important, that is what you tripped off, is you... Even if people shouldn't have been offended by it, they were offended by it. If your job is to not offend people, you have failed at that job. Yeah, those are two separate questions. Yeah, and then the question is, which of those questions is relevant in these situations? Now, I'm, 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 Mr. Ne- I'm, I'm Mr. Never Apologize. I don't think either of these guys should have lost their jobs, but I can see the perspective uh, that 93 is pointing to. Because that perspective is one that focuses on the fact of the matter was that a bunch of people were pissed off by this. So I'm setting aside the question of whether they should have been pissed off, given the reality that they were, it does seem to be untenable for his position to remain the same that it was. If his job is to court donations and to advocate for the organization, that's a big distraction that he's going to be trailing behind. Well, Stallman has been known for his unusual opinions or controversial opinions for a very long time. And so it just seems weird that this is the thing that got him kicked out and not like decades of previous uh, mailing list you know, conversations. That's a good point. Like if it's if it's part of the option to be an autistic weirdo, why is this suddenly the one that is too much to bear? Right. I think it's more that society changed around him, not that he changed. 93, I think you were defending like the reason why it makes sense for Stallman to not be in his, in his, in his position because, uh, because of the, like, he should be a PR guy, but I don't think you would get the free software movement without a personality like Richard Stallman. That is to get it off the ground. You need somebody who is just a, a really stubborn ideologue who is also a really good software developer. I think so I don't, I don't think you could get the same outcome of free software being as popular as it is today without his, his quirks, both good and bad. I agree. Luckily, we already have gotten it off the ground, and he's not getting canceled in 1960 before this has <laughs> happened. <laughs> okay. So, but don't you think this creates a chilling effect where whatever the next thing is going to be in software is the equivalent of... of the free software movement that there's, there's some potential upside that we might not get today because the culture has changed where people with these personalities are not going to, they're going to get censured before they can, they can create something great. So this creates a chilling effect on people who are really want to talk about pedophilia and people who are, too stupid and or autistic to realize that they shouldn't even though they have strong opinions on it or basically anybody who wants to have strong opinions on the shibboleth de jour yes it's not just pedophilia there are several topics most of them covered in red flags that people probably should avoid talking about that's true but the reason that free software became popular was Richard Stallman back in the 70s and 80s 
was a he he was totally clueless in terms of negative feedback. You just keep on preaching you guys need to have free software this, free software that, copyleft, GPL, blah blah blah, and eventually some of it's stuck. So it seems like the type of personality that gets these sorts of things popularized can't be the kind who can take a hint. You, you see what I'm getting at? I'm almost uh, yes, I see what you're where you're going with that, but I'm almost um, I, I, I'm almost not persuaded because uh, somebody like that isn't going to take the hint regardless, and they're going to plow ahead um, and sl- slam their head into the wall. Uh, but they uh, like just like this, he he's done he's done good things for the for the software world now he's getting slapped down because he crossed a line he shouldn't have in this day and age but the next time somebody like him does something for software or whatever they're just gonna that personality type is they're not you know damn the torpedoes full speed ahead they're not gonna care that they're not even gonna notice no no i i i get uh, sorry that's not what i'm saying i'm saying that that person you're right they will exist and they will do their thing because they they just don't understand the consequences of talking about whatever. But they yes, will in, get... In the words of the gal who wrote the Medium article, why do we, we excuse people just because they are geniuses? <laughs> uh, it, but in this case, I'm saying that uh, this person will get canceled, so to speak, before they're th- they've created a success. So... I will counter-argue that by creating a selection pressure for people who know how to avoid stepping on landmines, you are plausibly selecting for better movement building because the kind of person who knows enough to not step on those landmines will probably be able to get more people to follow them by virtue of not having any skeletons in their closet that everyone hates them over. That's also a selection effect, though, for a, well, a, a landmine society. <laughs> it's very hard to say anything. You're, you're selecting for people who are sensitive. And also okay. you're creating an incentive to be more sensitive to things. If you have a, uh, so, so if you have a culture of tolerating people who go looking for things to cancel people for. Well, not necessarily, not just more sensitive, but more aware of what people are sensitive about. That's its own. That's that's a separate uh, set of skills. But Jeff, what I was going at there was the the concept of the um, chilling effect. I, I, I agree with you on the canceling. Got it. OK. And also, like Stallman is not being prevented from writing code. The The issue here is pretty narrow. He just stepped down from what, as 93 described, a PR position. Because he demonstrated to be unqualified. I, I think he also had to step down from GNOME as well. Well, sure. They, they make but, a bunch of software. I mean, in the grand... I don't think that's that he's actually being prevented from writing code. He can still write code. His contributions can still be accepted. He may have to do it under a pseudonym, but it's not the end of the world from the standpoint of his contributions to the, to the field. And I'm also inclined to agree that he's already kind of provided and contributed a significant amount already. It's not like he's, it's going to be a race where he's like, oh, maybe I should write code. And this is the 60s. But then he gets, quote unquote, canceled and he shifts his entire career to something else. That seems incre- incredibly implausible to me. 
Uh, well, he's not known just for the writing a lot of software, which he definitely has, but for inventing the whole concept of of copyleft and in the GPL and helping a bunch of court cases that made the GPL actually an enforceable license. So he seems to do a lot of of pushing on on those fronts as well as the software stuff. And I I doubt he'll be able to do that in the future. So forgive me if this is uncharitable, but it essentially boils down to, I hope you like your free software. You better let me talk about pity filio. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's a little uncharitable, but it's a fun dig. Yeah, I know it's uncharitable. Yeah, I I gave that disclaimer. So it's okay. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing you, uh, I think it was Mick Muster that brought it up was the, uh, uh, the quote, the, the, that the author of the article said, why do we basically give a pass to geniuses? Um, and, uh, you know, it, that br- brought to mind that uh, when reading it, the, uh, the, you know, the his history that apparently Albert Einstein was uh, abusive husband or, uh, and uh, stuff like that. Do it, does that mean we need to get rid of the concept of general relativity? I mean, I was just thinking of uh, Roman Polanski and how he had sex with a 14 year old and he still was celebrated in Hollywood for his work because he was an artistic genius. And the man does make some damn fine movies. Again, we keep rolling back to libertarianism. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> what does that have to do with libertarianism? You, you haven't seen those memes where you just substitute the word pedophile for a libertarian? <laughs> I have not seen those memes. No. <laughs> I have seen a few political compass memes about Jeffrey Epstein, and they're they're pretty funny. See lower lower right. Perfect. Yeah, it's just like a, a, a block of text <laughs> about how Jeffrey Epstein did nothing wrong and it just keeps explaining. Yeah, it's like the uh, actually it's a phebophilia. Like that's like the meme. <laughs> so Jeff, you posted a link about something that happened on GitHub where an individual by the name of Coraline Ada was objecting objecting to Elias Shito as being Shito Skito. It's called Opal Gate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for being involved in uh, something called Opal on GitHub as a contributor, specifically for his calling out of trans people for, quote, not accepting reality on Twitter. And, and so there was a back and forth regarding whether he should be involved in this project and whether other people should feel comfortable working with him. Opal was just a, a project... I think it's like a Ruby parser or something. I don't even I don't even remember at this point. This this one uh, person, Coraline Coraline Ada, just showed up. Uh, basically, found this guy's tweet at some point. I think this guy is Roman Catholic, uh, which is why he he said something along the lines of "Yeah, trans people are not accepting reality." And so she found. A, a GitHub, a, a GitHub project that he worked on, and even though she had never contributed to this project, she wanted him removed. And there was a big kerfuffle uh, on on the on the on the GitHub project, and eventually, I think he was not removed, and uh, Coraline got upset and tweeted about it a lot. And then eventually she went on to be hired at GitHub where she created some, I think it was a contributor covenant code of conduct, which is a very popular code of conduct used in 
a lot of open source software today, but one part of it basically says if you do or say things outside of the software, the the community that you're of software that you're working on, so you, you tweet a link to something that makes other people feel uh, unsafe, then you can be kicked out of that software project. So are you quoting this directly? The the code of conduct that you just said? No, no, it's a really long piece of legalese. I know, but that that's, specific clause, are you quoting it directly? No. I'm not. <laughs> I'm saying that several people have gotten kicked out of projects that had this contributor code of conduct because of things that they, you know, a tweet that they linked, you know, a tweet they made or a comment that they made totally outside in their personal life that somebody dug up and then used against them in that software project. Well, I just want to make sure that we're, that you're summarizing it accurately. Yeah. I'd have to go dig it up what the exact legalese is. Um, I can link to it later, but it's, it's a pretty long document. I found it. Okay. So yeah, feel free to lawyer read all of that. All I know is that (laughs) it has been used. So my, my only uh, interest in this is I don't want something to end up on the podcast if, if it's, if it can be plausibly flat, fat checked. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That makes sense. I don't, it's not, I'm not really staking a position. I just don't want it to be mischaracterizing it. Right. Uh, There's a catch all in there. That's like, Oh, here it is. Other conduct, which could be, which could reasonably be considered inappropriate in a professional setting. This unacceptable behavior is not just limited to things that are done within the software project that the code of code of conduct applies to, but also to the rest of your life. Where does it say that it applies to the rest of your life? Uh, I gotta could dig it up. I don't remember, dude. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, this is why I write software and not uh, be lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just, but, I, I'm not trying to put you on the hot seat. Uh, no, no, it's, it's understandable. I, I did a control F. I didn't see anything about safety. Uh, no, I mean, I think that the, uh, the, the problem is that it's, it's, it's actually a fairly short document for one, um, at least what I'm looking at. And it says examples of unexpected be- behavior, unacceptable behavior by participants include, among other things, other conduct which could reasonably be considered inappropriate in a professional setting. I mean, th- that is so broad as to yeah. basically include belching. <laughs> yeah. Of course, it's very selectively enforced. Of course. And there's no workplace because it's... Uh, it's the internet. It's code contribution over the internet. <laughs> I mean, the way it's written, I don't have an immediate objection to it. It seems fine. I would have to see how it plays out in practice. Yeah, I thought I linked to a couple of examples of... I think it was on the Node.js uh technical steering committee where some people were almost kicked off. There was a giant, some people resigned in protest and stuff because of, I found something. uh, Okay. Project maintainers have the right and responsibility to remove, edit or reject comments, commits, code, wiki edits, issues, and other contributions that are not aligned to this code of conduct or to ban temporarily or permanently any contributor for other behaviors that they deem inappropriate, threatening, offensive or harmful. Yeah. Okay. That is pretty broad. And they deem it, so it's completely discretionary. And unappealable. All right, the council has convened that you were correct originally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm glad I I didn't just 
put my foot in my mouth in like the most ridiculous way possible. I hope you enjoyed this detour, listeners. <laughs> I know it might be gone, but who knows? <laughs> no, no, leave this shit in. It's perfect. <laughs> Let it be a living record. Yeah. I think I think the uh, the members of uh, the mod are it would actually appreciate that discussion. Yeah, this is uh <laughs> Yeah, it might it. it might be nice to for them to see that we actually try to aim for accuracy. Yeah. Uh, the contributor code of conduct is the official code of conduct of the Linux kernel now, by the way. Which was run by Linus Torvalds, who is not known for his niceness. So that's a just it's surprising just how much this this code of conduct is used throughout the the open source community now. <laughs> uh, he did step down for a while uh, because of his behavior. I think a lot of people pressured him in, into taking a, a break on the Linux kernel. I think he took a month off and then then came back and he he promised to be a, a less angry person uh, on the mailing list. So Jeff, you uh, posted an example on uh, Node.js about some of the uh, can you expand more about that? The Node Node.js is a it's another piece of open source software. It's pretty popular, and there was one person on the oh sorry, and Node.js uses the uh, contributor covenant code of conduct. So <laughs> yeah, there there is one person Rod Vag who is on the he's a He's been contributing to Node.js since very early days, and he is on the the technical steering committee of Node.js. So they try and make sure that the technical decisions being made are sane long term, because if you don't have something like that, it can be easy to just accumulate a lot of cruft. Anyway, uh, he linked to a Quillette article called The Neurodiversity Case for Free Speech. I think it was written by Jeffrey Miller. He just tweeted out a link to that, and he said something along the lines of, he said, if you've never considered the potential downsides of codes of conduct, here's a good place to start, and then link to that. And for this one tweet, he he almost got kicked off the technical steering committee, and I think several people resigned from it, and they had a vote to try and you know kick him off, and it, it failed. And if you looked at some of the other things that other people on the technical steering committee said, who did not have their, who were not, you know, at risk of being kicked off, they were things that were like much more uh, divisive than that 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 one line. So the example that you posted is. With regards to uh, a board member from Node.js by the name yeah. of Ashley Williams. And right. uh, she had multiple tweets where she denigrates white dudes, white people in general, men in general, uh, on and on. And one person yes. kind of compiled it into a list and filed a formal code of conduct violation by Ashley Williams. And essentially, yeah. this is kind of an example of, you know, strangling people by their own petard <laughs> yeah. in a way you're saying, okay, we need code of conduct. All right, let's make sure that it's uh, uniformly applied. And, right. 
And your description, go ahead, continue what, what happened with Ashley Williams. Uh, I actually don't remember what happened. I think nothing happened. I think the, the main response was, oh, those don't count because they're outside of uh, the Node.js you know, community. It's her own personal Twitter. Uh, I, I think the end, at the end of the day, nobody, n- neither of them got kicked off, their, kicked out of their positions. Which I think is the correct result in this case, because they were doing things that they're they, a they're not um, in the same position as Stallman as being the head of a um, you know, PR machine, uh, and b the statements were made entirely offline. Uh, well, not offline in the, the literal <laughs> sense. But. We've reached the point where Twitter is offline. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, mean, I, I recently it, referred to an MP3 file as quote hard copy as opposed to streaming. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, I agree with you, CRC, that I don't want people to get kicked off of technical projects for personal opinions they have. I'm fine working with people who have all kinds of ideas, you know, political leanings that I think are crazy because they probably think that my ideas are crazy. So let's just work on this piece of software together. Yeah, taking up a couple levels of abstraction, um, everyone that we've discussed, uh, Arvag, uh, um, the, uh, this Ashley person, um, Richard Stallman, James Damore, okay, they're all assholes. <laughs> if you want to fire every fucking asshole in the world, there'd be nobody doing any work. Oh, I mean, there would, the people who aren't don't meet the definition of asshole. But the trouble is pretty much everyone meets the definition of asshole at some point. Everyone is someone's asshole. <laughs> well, I suppose that's kind of the... <laughs> what a beautiful statement. Uh, yeah. I'm going to yeah. fucking nip that and put it on the wall. Um, I'm sticking a Hallmark card. <laughs> well, I suppose that kind of comes down to how this is a little authoritarian, isn't it? Isn't it? A key feature of authoritarian and totalitarian uh, environments is that everyone is guilty. And you combine that with capricious enforcement and it creates a, the chilliest of chilling effects. That's not to say that's not to catastrophize the, the current situation. Catastrophize. How do you nah, catastrophize? Catastrophize. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. That's not the catastrophize because this isn't that serious, but if you see, this is kind of a worrying trend. That is kind of what it looks like it's moving towards as everyone is guilty of something and everyone can be canceled according to the whims of capricious observers. I will just point out that the the adaptation to this sort of maximum cancel culture is just stop tweeting about politics. It's not difficult and it would probably make the world a better place anyway. So... (laughs) Yeah, but can you imagine how difficult that would be to enforce, even on a case-by-case basis? Well, we're seeing the effects of people enforcing that. Well, not, that not a blanket this... ban on politics, just the wrong kind of politics. Right. Right. Well, that's how that would, that's how that would work. <laughs> well, I refer to it as an adaptation. It's not that it's in force. It's that people notice that talking about politics ends badly and just stop doing it. Yeah, that will be the day. Autistic people, stop being so autistic. <laughs> well, in in this case, I mean, we, to use the Coraline Ada example, you go look at her Twitter and it's almost nothing but politics. But 
it's because it's it's like the right kind of politics so she she can get away with it but also to circle back to how serious thing this may be the effect of stallman's firing is that stallman is now homeless wait what uh, i i linked in i linked in the show chat a archived post from his blog saying that he is looking for housing presumably this is because he was living in the, his office at that uh place he resigned from <laughs> yeah he's, he's always been a a weird, that's the, the, like the mentions of the uh the mattress in his office and the articles that's because he was living there amazing this person is fascinating is oh i can link you to the the free software song later you can listen to it he wrote it you should see that if you Google him, you'll see pictures of him dressed up as Saint Ignatius with a giant one, <laughs> one of those right. giant uh, 1970s era hard drives m- mounted on his head like a halo. Yeah. I Saint about Ignatius. That. How do I spell that? There's uh, definitely a G and U in there. Yeah, I G N U. It's on his Wikipedia page at the, <laughs> at the bottom <laughs> yeah. under terminology. <laughs> just, I'll just blink it. <laughs> oh, God bless these people. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, I I like weird people. I mean, so McMuster, to your point, when it comes to whether essentially you're making an argument that maybe cancel culture, however you want to call it, will implode on itself. I don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, the latest example was the Des Moines Register, the reporter Aaron Calvin, who uh, dug up some tweets on some random nobody. And then people were really upset that he dug up those tweets because everyone thought they were irrelevant. And then, you know, ironically, they found, uh, they, the internet found tweets from Aaron Calvin that were even worse and he got fired as a result result. And you would think that would be like a teachable moment, but it doesn't look like that's, that's what happened. <laughs> no. <laughs> Instead, no. the Buzzfeed news kind of had a glowing profile on how unfair it was. And it linked the campaign to get rid of him to right wing white nationalists as leading the charge which is, you know, an easy way to just kind of throw shade at the whole thing. I'm not so sure that it's going to implode on itself. It looks more like it's moving towards its own stable equilibrium. Like this just seems like the Internet it, as it was, was too unstable to be compatible with uh, broader adaption by people. Because people can't tend to be censorious little bastards who can't tolerate people who, who are, well, weird. And uh, correction, it wasn't white nationalists that were blamed. It was right-wing ideologues. Okay. Minor point. But basically the same thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think it's... I think the internet as it was, as you're all imagining it, and as, as you all want it to be, I think that may have been the stranger state of affairs. That what we're seeing Probably. now is more is more what it looks like when you actually connect all of humanity together and allow all of humanity to see each other and interact with one another. The endless September, yeah. What? What's endless September? Eternal September. Eternal September, yeah. Uh, back in so it used to be every every fall, every September, in the eighties and nineties, a new batch of students would come into universities, and they would have the, that would be their first time accessing news groups on the internet. 
And so you have all these these newbies showing up just just creating chaos and you know not understanding the norms and everything. But then it settles down as they as they assimilate. But in I think it was 1993, AOL offered Usenet access to all of their members, and so now it was just forever newbies showing up and overwhelming everything and and the whole discourse with the shit. I think I'm describing that accurately. Yep. Yes. It has been eternal September since then. September 1993. Yeah. I mean, I remember I'm not the only one that kind of has this nostalgic uh, romance about the blogosphere and how nice that was. Because at least you had these uh, semi-gated communities where people congregated among each other. They interacted primarily with each other and understood what they meant much more than just you stumbling upon a random tweet. Right. The, you can was... still have that. Just stop tweeting and go to blogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's not the trend. There is a cottage industry of smaller, more uh, compartmentalized communities rather than exposing yourself to the entire internet and throwing your opinions and memes out into the void. You do it with a circle of friends or people who are somewhat like-minded. Yeah, I recommend one of them. It's called Slate Star Codex. Yeah, exactly. Or even Discord. Discord kind of works like that as well. You only associate with the people you want to associate with. You're not uh, screaming your views into the internet as a whole on Twitter or Facebook. Yeah, unlike say VR chat. Yeah. <laughs> VR chat something else. I'm not entirely sure how, how that would segue into it. <laughs> Sorry, often you just end up in a room with a ton of people just yelling. I'm not even sure if people I'm not even sure if that is really appropriate though. Yeah. Because eternal September is people adjusting to the norms of a community. And that's just people are constantly cycling through that. But it, it seems like a new set of norms has been established since there's a certain critical mass has been reached. I don't think it's a stable equilibrium where we're at. I think we're still trying to figure out how it works. Well, yeah, we're in the middle of the reaction right now, is what I'm saying. I, I think we were at an unstable equilibrium and we're moving towards something that is a rather energetic process. Sorry, chemistry analogy. Probably not appropriate to apply that to sociology or I mean, whatever the, the hell this the should be. Closest, uh, the most analogous uh, situation is I remember when Tinder first came out, the online dating app, and people weren't really quite sure how to use it. And over time, you, you get settled into a sort of semi-stable culture where certain things are deemed inappropriate or too fast or too slow. Uh, but in the beginning, it's chaotic. It's kind of a free-for-all. Okay. Uh, we should end this unless someone has any closing thoughts. Nope, not really. Oh my god, it's so funny that Richard Stallman is homeless. Also incredibly <laughs> sad, and actually kind of goes against the... I'm not... We shouldn't catastrophize this thing, because this does actually point to serious outcomes from this uh, cancel culture, as we're calling it. I will reiterate that he is financially stable, so the homelessness is a matter of finding a place that he can sign a lease on rather than having the money with which to do so. Presuming he does not go full Diogenes and be a uh, voluntary homeless man sitting in a box or wandering around the streets naked with a lamp looking for the one honest man. Do, it would not you, shock me if he did that. Searching for the free web browser. <laughs> yeah, well, if you, if you do read his, uh, his posting for an apartment, uh, it, it's interesting. Okay, we'll link it. Okay, thank you, everyone. Yeah, it was fun.
Scott Alexander, sign the scenes chest.